Welcome to Elixir Mix, your weekly Elixir podcast talking with members of the community. My name is Mark Erickson, and today we have Josh Adams. Hey! And Michael Reese. Hello, Elixir friends. This episode is sponsored by Sentry.io. Recently, I came across a great tool for tracking and monitoring problems in my apps. Then I asked them if they wanted to sponsor the show and allow me to share my experience with you. Sentry provides a terrific interface for keeping track of what's going on with my app. It also tracks releases so I can tell if what I deployed makes things better or worse. They give full stack traces and as much information as possible about the situation when the error occurred to help you track down the errors. Plus, one thing I love, you can customize the context provided by Sentry. So, if you're looking for specific information about the request, you can provide it. It automatically scrubs passwords and secure information, and you can customize the scrubbing as well. Finally, it has a user feedback system built in that you can use to get information from your users. Oh, and I also love that they support open source to the point where they actually open source Sentry if you want to self-host it. Use the code devchat at sentry.io to get two months free on Sentry's small plan. That's code devchat at sentry.io. So today we wanted to just talk together and have this a conversation about some different topics that we've been having and just, uh, you know, out off, offline, off the podcast. We just still communicate. We have ideas and things. And there's some topics that we want to just kind of cover. And some of those, uh, so we're going to touch on a few different things, um, but we thought we'd get started with um, some discussions that I've seen around in the Elixir community recently, because one of the things that I think is exciting about the Elixir community is that we have a lot of new people coming in from a lot of different areas. Originally, in the early days of Elixir, it seemed like pretty much everyone was coming from Ruby on Rails kind of background. And now, you know, I'm talking with people who are coming out of JavaScript boot camps. And when someone gives an explanation of something like, oh, it works just like this in, in Rails, they're like, I have no idea what that means. That doesn't help me. And then we have other people who are coming out of longtime PHP developers or Java developers. So I think it's, it's awesome that we have reached this point in the Elixir's growth that we are drawing people from all these different communities. So some of the interesting topics that we can kind of cover there that I'd love to hear everyone's opinions on is kind of like with language adoption, whenever there's a new language, like right now we seem to be kind of in a language renaissance, right? There's a lot of languages that have been coming out like Go and what is the new Apple one that I keep forgetting about? Swift. Swift. Yes. Thank you. And, you know, there's an closure and, you know, it's not terribly new, but it's still in that growth cycle. There's a lot of different languages, a lot of Rust, a lot of Got different... Pony. What's that? Pony. You'll have to tell me about that one. I didn't even know that one. Yeah, it, it, it was birthed from uh, Erlang community members, which is fun. And then, uh, yeah. And then Crystal. Yep. Lots of fun languages. Yeah. So it's kind of this renaissance where people are exploring new ideas. And so some of the concerns I've kind of heard expressed are people saying like, oh, you know, I'm someone or I know people who are really excited about Elixir and they want to be doing Elixir development, but they can't find jobs. And it's just kind of like that, uh, that, that concern about where we are in the growth cycle and thinking, oh, there aren't jobs. Um, so I'd love to hear you guys' thoughts on that perspective and just uh, kind of where you see Elixir currently in its growth. Uh, just before diving in to answer that question, I, I wanted to mention one other language actually that I heard about recently that, that sounded very interesting because it's very different than all the other ones we mentioned. So it's called Dark or Darkling. Um, and I, I think uh, I'm not going to do this justice, but I'll say that one of their main hypotheses is actually that any sort of new technologies tend to go through expansion and contraction phases. And expansion phases, you can think of these as like, you know, when PCs are new, people are just inventing random one-off programs. All programs kind of live independently. And then someone realizes like, oh, there is kind of like 
everyone who works a desk job, they all use spreadsheets, they all use word processing, we're going to make Microsoft Office. And now there's like a, con a condensation phase where a bunch of ideas get pulled back together and, um, and you, can, you can tie a bunch of the layers, you can kind of collapse a bunch of the layers of abstraction and make, help users not have to think about them. Um, and Darkling very much tries to do that for programming languages. So it's, it, uh, it has its own deployment and hosting story. There's literally no way that you can deploy this code on your own, as far as I'm aware. Um, and so you write it, it has its own editor. And so like, you don't have to think, you don't have to choose an editor. You don't have to choose a package manager. You don't have to choose how to deploy it. You don't have to choose where to run it. Um, all those choices are made for you, which is both good and bad, but, um, but it's a very interesting and different set of trade-offs. So just as we're talking about, uh, language life cycles, maybe this is one, at least I'm keeping my eye on just to see its story will unfold very differently than Elixir's story is going to unfold, um, which will be interesting to me. Um, I think back to your question more directly than Mark, uh, I kind of think of, uh, I, I think there's kinds of two graphs that pop into my mind when, um, when we talk about adoption uh, of languages. One is, uh, is an adoption curve that talks about early adopters, uh, the ma early majority, late majority laggards, um, I just dropped a link and, uh, in our show notes. Um, and so that one talks a lot about kind of the personas that get interested at different times. But there's another graph that popped into my mind called the hype cycle. And the hype cycle is a little bit more about um, the way people feel about new technologies. And, um, and to some degree, both industries and individuals go through the hype cycle with each new technology. So I think... I can see people's point in saying that it's hard to find Elixir jobs. Interestingly, I live in a spot where I think that's actually not very true. Um, there's uh, several large-ish uh, Elixir companies in, that live in my area or that operate in my area, and they have been hoovering up developers from other communities. I know people who hire Ruby developers in the area where I live are all complaining because uh, a bunch of those Ruby developers are getting hoovered up by the Elixir, a couple of the big Elixir companies, um, which is, for me, that's extremely exciting to see. But um, I, I mean, I can understand why it causes other people some consternation. <laughs> and I have definitely seen, though, that there's, you know, there's a lot of communities where there is no big Elixir shop in town, or um, your only real shot is going to be to try to work remote. And there's lots of people who may or may not want to work remote for reasons totally separate of language choice, just because of the way they like to work and the way they like to interact with their coworkers. Yeah, to that end, I would just reiterate that if you're willing to do work, remote work, and um, I very much prefer it, then it's much easier to, to sort of be at the cutting edge on the language side of things because the, you know, the companies that are also cutting edge have to take people where they can get them. And very frequently that is remote. So early in the adoption cycle, I feel like it's easier to get a job remotely by leaps and bounds. Having yeah. said that, uh, here in my tiny major metro, so I'm, I'm near Birmingham, Alabama, uh, there are multiple Elixir companies hiring right now. So there's more more jobs than there are people to fill them. And it's a, it's a smaller metro. Hmm. That's interesting. I used to live outside of the Birmingham area and you know work in Birmingham. And uh, at that time, that was, uh, gosh, it was too long ago to say, um, but it was, you know, a .NET Microsoft town. So it, I, it's still primarily a .NET Microsoft town. 
but it's interesting that there's Elixir at all. Because like when I was there, there was I was looking to try and do Rails development, and there was one company doing questionable things, and I was like, I can't work for them. Um, but so they, they're like, you know, like <laughs> they were like they were like creating, you know, uh, like bank cards for uh, with really high like you know aggressive interest rates, uh, targeting the people who really have horrible credit. It's like I I can't be a part of that. Uh, so I had to, I had to move, uh, you know, I had to move to where I felt like it was a good market. Um, but I was something I was willing to do. Uh, not everyone can do that. I totally get that too. So work remote and give up your ethics. Those are the two, <laughs> the two pro tips so far. Um, I think, uh, so that's interesting to hear the, you know, your comment on working at a .NET place, trying to advocate for Ruby. I was working at a PHP shop. Um, kind of right out of college. Well, during college, I, I got like an hourly job and ended up getting a full-time job with a company that was doing a lot of PHP. And during that time, we, we were constantly fighting the, the churn cycle of bugs. Like every time we release a new feature, we'd break something like inevitably every single time. And so um, I started like looking into testing and other things. And, and um, that's kind of when I started to fall in love with Ruby at the time. And I was really advocating for Ruby. And I remember going through a period feeling super frustrated that like, man, there's like not only my company, but there's all these other companies in my area where, you know, if they had better unit tests and if they were in a community that valued unit tests so that they would find other developers for their team that developed that valued unit tests, things could be so much better. And, um, and so I think it's healthy as a community, like if, if you are in a spot where you're feeling frustrated that you can't find Elixir work um, when you want to, to be aware that you're, you're not alone. There's a lot of people for a lot of different languages that have felt that way or that will be feeling that way because they see some way that this new tool would serve their team, their product, their users better. And, um, and making the jump from seeing a way that it makes things better to actually being able to do the thing that makes things better. That's actually quite a wide chasm. It requires a large leap, not only for you, but for teammates, for the people who maybe who have invested money into your company, potentially um, other people at the company who have invested their time into that company and that product. You're asking a lot of people to make a leap. Um, so I think, you know, just have, having patience, being willing to do a lot of the slow work of, um, of getting other people on board with, with the decision and with finding a way that you can, you can slide into that new world of, of using a tool that makes something better. Yep. I, I wanted to just kind of give some perspective and share like my uh, story kind of coming to uh, Ruby on Rails because I was like in .NET and because I, you know, that was the best that I knew at the time and I was excited about it. And then, you know, I was doing web development and this is pre uh, MVC framework even in .NET. This is back with web forms. And that's, that's all that existed, right? That was the solution. It's like, this is how you do web development with ASP web forms. And I uh, thought, okay, well, I get it. I, that, that makes sense. And then I started playing with Ruby on Rails because it was a very new technology, very just kind of starting to pick up on the hype cycle. And I was like, this is such a better way to do this. You know, like the MVC model, the way of organizing code, the, the way you're actually generating just straight up controlled uh, HTML and JavaScript. And it's like more web standard compliant and everything about it was better, uh, at least the, from the perspective I had. And 
then I went through that phase I, being an early adopter. I went to that phase of like trying to find, uh, trying to adopt, get adoption in my company, trying to find places where I could reach out and uh, be with other people like uh, either online communities or um, meetups or anything like that. Just trying to find people who are interested, trying to find other jobs. So I've been through that cycle and I recognize what that feels like. And I see the same pattern here in Elixir. So I, I just want to kind of reassure people who may be in that point of, you know, uh, it, Elixir's been around now for, I, I don't remember, Jose was telling us, I think it was maybe five years now, maybe seven years. I'm not sure. Yeah, a little over five years in its current incarnation. Yeah. So it's about five years old, right? And that's actually been around for a while. Like when you look at the technology curve, like it was, you know, you, Josh and Michael, and we kind of were some of those earlier adopters. And so we've, you know, been working with it for four years or so, or, and, and so it's, it's, we're at a different place in our personal development experience with this language. And, and so it's, I just want to reassure people that if they are concerned about that and they're kind of coming fresh now and they're excited about the technology that this is a kind of a, like, this is a known kind of cycle and it does take time to really pick up and become really mainstream. Like, Right now, I would say Rails is mainstream. There are a number of different uh, coding boot camps or uh, ways to just learn Rails, and they'll just kind of keep turning out more people that have learned Rails. And so it is, that is, I'd say, the definition of mainstream. And so it is going to, at some point, start to wane and drop off. Uh, like if you look at like uh, COBOL, right? Um, I, I took uh, in some computer science classes back in college. I, I lived in a town where uh, one of the big businesses was a, it was a bank backend, like first data is what they're called. Big bank systems, big mainframes. And people would go, we'd go tour it and they'd have like, you know, big robot arms that would be in these silos and go pick out tape machine, you know, tape uh, cartridges and load them and run credit card jobs and all that kind of stuff. And they were pushing for people to learn COBOL because they needed people to maintain systems. But it is, COBOL is still around. You can still do COBOL, but it is on that way sliding down phase. But it is one of those things that will be around for a long, long time. Yeah, really? often when a technology is on the way sliding down phase, uh, the salaries for people that will still work in it are, are outsized, which is maybe a benefit. Yeah. You can make a lot of money doing COBOL these days. Yeah, just because there aren't that many people who can do it. Yeah, so I don't know. It's just kind of, I just wanted to help people get a little bit of perspective about like, you know, if you're coming new to development, like you haven't been programming for very long, maybe you're like a junior or even coming, coming up to mid-level in your career, you know, you're still fairly early in the, in the kind of whole grand scheme of it. And that's an awesome place to be. It's exciting. It's fun. Uh, there's lots to learn, uh, but it's just kind of get a bigger picture. It's like, this is, these cycles have existed. They will continue to exist, be it with uh, Elixir or Swift or anything. You know, there's going to be these, they will, you know, different languages will achieve different levels of success and adoption and become different levels of mainstream. And then eventually they, they will be supplanted by something else eventually, right? One, okay. one thing I think is interesting is I feel like containerization has compressed a little bit the ramp up for languages because it's much more palatable to, to bring a new language in when it's just a container that your ops guys already know how to deploy. Um, whereas you know, back at the beginning of Rails, figuring out how to deploy stuff 
pre-Capistrano even was, uh, you know, interesting to say the least. And you certainly totally. couldn't just hand it over to existing ops people and expect them to go do it. Totally. And then you had the, I'd had situations where you're trying to migrate from one version of Rails or, you know, Ruby to another version and you have like maybe multiple applications. So you have to roll out a new, you know, virtual machine or hardware because they you know, conflicting libraries and everything. So yeah, you're right. Containerization really has been an interesting way to compress some of those changes. I, I, that's it. I hadn't thought about containerization in that, but um, I have noticed that it has been a general trend that um, there are some life cycles we've seen in the recent years that I would say are condensed, right? So if you, if you think about, um, you know, Go when it released, so it released in, I think like 2012. Um, so it's been around like a couple of years longer than, um, than Elixir, but its adoption at this point is much higher. And that's affected by a lot of different factors, not least of which is being backed by Google and having the, the creator, maintainer of the language, um, like the core team being completely sponsored by Google. Um, and, and that then creates buzz, which creates a bunch of people trying it out, that creates traction and companies are, you know, when they know Google's using it, then it's considered stable. So companies are less uh, risk averse about it. So, um, you know, we see those kinds of stories. JavaScript is an interesting one because it had this long history, but went through another hype cycle, I'd say, with all of the Node.js and then NPM, uh, you know, tooling that kind of repopularized. Um, at least it created new ways of building interesting JavaScript things and then single page apps and all that. So, so there's all these different factors that I think you can, a language can go through multiple hype cycles. And this actually reminds me, I'll drop a link here to um, Fred Abair, um wrote a blog post recently called 10 Years of Erlang. And he talks about how Erlang had a very interesting hype, hype cycle where, um, you know, there was a little bit of buzz around it right around the time that Ericsson open sourced it. Before that, people, there was kind of like rumors about it. I remember in college hearing stories about uh, an Erlang system that was at a telco and it was discovered years later that someone had hot reloaded a module that allowed them to basically wiretap certain conversations and they had gone like this hack was really elaborate had gone through they had like found ways to make sure that the md5 sum of the new bytecode matched the md5 of the original is like really really um obviously extremely highly uh I don't want to. I don't want to give a positive uh, adjective here. <laughs> it was extremely well done for what it was. <laughs> very, very clever. Yes. Very clever. There you go. Um, and and so I heard about that kind of stuff. But Erlang really wasn't a language that I knew of as as like a real thing that people delivered software with. And Fred talks about how you know these a, a lot of companies during these time periods. Um, Erlang found its way into like Cisco. It found its way into a lot of these infrastructure places. So, you know, the routing layer at Heroku was, I think that one is still on Erlang. Um, Facebook's chat system for a while was on Erlang. And so it, when it got open sourced, it kind of went through a hype cycle, but it found its way very much into the world of infrastructure, kind of lower level components that people would build systems on top of. So think of, you know, Rabbit and Q kind of fits into that, um, that storyline as well. But um, but there weren't a lot of end products built on Erlang. 
And when Elixir comes along, we're in an interesting spot because we share all the history and the stability of Erlang. And so, you know, we, we say like Elixir is five years old, but the VM is obviously much older than that. It has decades of um, sponsored research into it. And, and that creates a bunch of stability that if, if the whole ecosystem was five years old, it, it just wouldn't be there. Even Phoenix, like if it couldn't have been built on Cowboy, it wouldn't have had, you know, those microsecond response times in its early versions. And, and so we benefit from certain things that help our hype cycle, but we also, um, our hype cycle will look different. And I would say that it's a fairly good bet. In my opinion, I think it's a fairly good bet that our hype cycle won't look like Go and our hype cycle won't look like JavaScript. Um, and so I don't imagine, you know, that the number of Elixir programmers is ever going to be larger than the number of people doing Go on a daily basis for work. But, um, but the, that also doesn't matter to some point. To, like, it doesn't matter whether or not 50% of the world is using Elixir. It just matters that there's enough people using it and enough companies with a vested interest that its future is going to be fairly stable. And, and I think it's even worth noting that like, the most... Uh, advanced age use case we've talked about so far of COBOL, it is still around, right? Like, no, I, I don't know of any projects that are starting today where someone's like, oh, let's use COBOL. But even though it's really on the tail end of its life cycle, there's no sign of it going away because there's so many systems that exist. And even though lots of new software is being written all the time, there's a lot of software that just continues to run and continues to work and people don't want to rewrite it. And they're just going to do whatever it takes to have an, you know, another COBOL and another mainframe and someone will keep building mainframes because there's a market to sell them. So, um, you know, I don't think we know a whole lot as an industry about what the end of that life cycle looks like other than the fact that it drags on a lot further than most people would have guessed. I think it actually drags on basically indefinitely. There's a book I've forgotten the name of by Kevin Kelly uh, where he d just goes over just the history of technology generally. And there's, he just goes through a ridiculous number of extremely ancient technologies that you would think for sure have been superseded. And then he's like, here's where it's used in industry today. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> okay, so uh, where, let, let's go ahead and get some, some estimates then. Based on the, um, the technology adoption lifecycle curve that you posted, uh, where do we think each of us that, uh, that Elixir is right now? Uh, I believe that we're still in like the late phase of early adopters, personally. Yeah, I... Uh, that's interesting because I think of I also think of myself just in terms of my own experience with the hype cycle. So I'm glad you uh, included that one, Michael. Uh, but like the hype cycle, I, I remember. So I will come back to that, Josh. I I, I do want to make sure I weigh in on that and like give Michael a chance to do that. But uh, I think of the hype cycle. I think uh, I remember when I first started learning about Elixir, and you know, compared to what I knew with Ruby on Rails and .NET and other languages. It's like, uh, it's like, oh, this can solve all the problems. This can solve, this, this will be everything. Like, look at uh, Bleacher Report, how they went from 150 Rails servers down to five, and they were over-provisioned with that. It's like, this can do everything, right? It, going from that to, um, you know, having basically unrealistic expectations, right? And on the hype cycle, that is the peak of inflated expectations. And then you drop down into what they call the trough of disillusionment. And I don't think I ever really hit that. Like in terms of like, oh, this can't do anything. First time I tried to deploy something is when I hit that. <laughs> right. <laughs> yeah, it's like, oh, I can't build a 3D game engine with this. 
it's like, okay, yeah, maybe not. But, you know, so it is just the recognition that there is appropriate jobs where d- different technologies excel. And that's, and then you have the slope of enlightenment. It's like, okay, I see what problems this technology is really good at. And then you have the plateau of productivity, which is just like, okay, I'm productive. I'm, I'm getting, getting stuff done, making meaningful change. Uh, so I went through that personal journey myself. Um, I do kind of feel like we are in, and, and a lot of it is geographic. Like you're talking about like Michael, like where we live, like Michael and I both live in Utah. And so there are a lot of opportunities here. Uh, and so I, I do think it, a lot of it is geographic. Like, you know, there might not be as much on, you know, in Birmingham or on the East coast or I don't know, Austin. I, I, I don't, I haven't been looking around for jobs to, to know what regionally what it's like but I think it will be different in different places. But I, I kind of do feel like we are still in that early adopter phase. Um, it is not. The only reason I got to be an early adopter basically is because I, I ran a consultancy. So I got to pick what I wrote stuff in for the most part, if it wasn't you know, pushed on me by a particular client. And so when I started learning about it, I didn't have to stop there. I actually got to use it in production because I wanted to. And most people don't really have that freedom. Um, and that's a shame. Yeah, so I don't know. My vote is uh, still in the early adopter phase. Michael, what about you? Uh, I think I agree. It does, to me, I'd say it feels like the later, the latter end of the early adopter phase because, you know, at this point, if you, if you ask the question like, oh, which notable companies are using Elixir in production, it, it's not going to be like one or two or three, you know, it's, um, there, there's quite a few at this point um, that are using it. So that feels to me like we're moving out of early adopters and into people who are like, no, we're going to be um, reliably delivering value based on this. Um, obviously, I think it's still in the earlier stages of that, right? Like, in probably not really even there. So I, I definitely don't think it's in its early majority. Um, I think it's definitely in the, it's still in the early adopter space. Um, uh, one thing that I think is really interesting and worth noting to me, though, as I've kind of, you know, gone similar to Mark, you know, kind of gone through my own cycle of, oh, my gosh, I just want to use Elixir for everything, literally feeling like every piece of code I have written in the last 10 years would have been better in Elixir. Um, I remember saying that at lunch to a friend. <laughs> and uh, yeah, I mean, you could maybe say that that's peak hype. Um and so, you know, coming off of that to like, you know, having gone through um, watching a team of people try to get on board with it. Um, we built a, a project. Um, I kind of, I had advocated for it. We, we got kind of the, the sign off, like, yep, you can go ahead and build. And what we'd like you to do is try to pull two new people into that project, let them learn Elixir and see how they feel about it at the end of their learning phase. Um, and what we found is that um, a couple of new people that kind of got pulled in, um, three, three people ended up kind of contrib- new people ended up contributing besides the two original authors. One had kind of played around with Elixir before, um, and that person really loved it. And, you know, they were up to speed within a week and making meaningful contributions. The other two people had not done any Elixir before. One of them, um, both of them took about two weeks, I would say. Like in the first week, there was a lot of like, wait, what the heck is pattern matching? That takes some conversations. Then there's like a, hey, how come if I enum.each things, I can't actually make any changes? And that's like, okay, immutable, op- immutable data structures conversation. There's like a few of those classic ones you have to have when people are coming up to speed on Elixir. And those tended to happen in the first week. And then the second week was a lot more of like, oh, I'm, 
I need to go look at the Phoenix docs for each little thing I want to do, or I need to go look at the Elixir docs to find the function that does this thing. Um, it, but within, I'd say two weeks, both of them had made, uh, they had PRs open that were, um, significant, right? They're making meaningful change to the project. And one of them at the end had a really positive review of the experience. Another one was kind of meh, like after doing that much work, I would just as happily do it in Ruby. Um, and so, you know, I think that kind of tempered my excitement a little bit, realizing like, oh, not everyone will love this thing the same way that I love it. Um, but that being said, there is also evidence that like, there's certain things that Erling and Elixir community are getting right that really are still missing in other tool sets. Um, and one that stood out to me, we've been talking, we've talked a lot about recently about Gary Bernhardt. Um, and uh, I noticed uh, he had a tweet the other day um, and he was talking about a product that he recently was, was like, working on quietly and then he just released it. And uh, he talks about trying to monitor processes and that he, he used like system D, he tried out a bunch of different kind of off the, off the shelf tooling to basically be able to make a tree of different processes that might depend on each other. These are operating system level processes and then making sure that things got restarted when different things crashed. And, um, and he basically has this like half rage tweet of literally all of them had edge cases that I could find in a trivial amount of experimentation, um, which is exactly my same experience. You know, like if I think uh, still on like system D, if you, if a process hard crashes, like it just seg faults, it just will end up in some zombie state where the PID file is still there and it doesn't know if it's still alive or whatever. And it, like, it won't ever self heal. And that kind of stuff, there are lots of examples of Erlang and Elixir systems that got supervision right and ran for years and years and years without ever having something get into a zombie state. Not that that can't happen, can't do it, but, um, but the tooling around it is so much better. And, um, and I think it's one of these reasons that you'll see people who went far enough in that cycle to um, start to really understand what's happening inside of OTP, I see a very low drop-off rate of those people. Because once they've seen that, even if they switch and like, oh, I'm, I want to take this job that's interesting to me and it's not an Erlang, they'll walk away from the community for a little bit to, to do a job or whatever, but they are anxious to come back when the opportunity presents itself because the observability tools, the stability and reliability tools are just the best that I've found anywhere. Um, and I think we should, you know, keep that in mind just when, at least when I'm doing my mental calculations of, yes, we're in the early adopter phase. Yes. Maybe this still feels a little bit risky to a lot of companies, but, um, but it has this proven track record. Like it, it has some really amazing stuff that I, I just haven't found anywhere else. Even, even amazing projects like Akka, where they, they kind of took some of the same concepts of Erlang and re-implemented it into Java. And so that you could kind of have these functional reactive actors. Um, and that was a huge boon to a lot of Java projects. But last time, last time I played with it, the idea of like supervision trees and stuff still wasn't there. And, and that meant there's a bunch of little things you had to worry about and deal with on your own. So Josh, I haven't heard you weigh in where you think it is. Uh, where I think it is in the hype cycle. Or the, right. yeah, the adoption cycle. Yeah, I said, uh, I said the, the upper end of early adopter. That's right. Yeah, I was, yeah. was going to say regarding supervision trees, I, I feel like that's uh, an often underrepresented thing. And uh, when people are looking at Elixir early, 
uh, I don't think maybe you can appreciate how nice it is to have a very detailed ordering of dependencies that you're guaranteed are there. And uh, that's, that's a nicety. Yeah. I was talking with, with a, a coworker. He's an intern at work uh, yesterday and we were talking about um, like supervisors. Cause what we were doing is so we were setting up a supervisor to launch off uh, dynamic tasks and, and then the idea though is that we were talking about like system D and Docker and Kubernetes and all these things that people have created as ways of, you know, doing health checks and monitoring the system. And uh, when the whole thing crashes, bring it back up. And, and really what they're trying to do is they're trying to re-implement an Erlang system. Uh, and, but they're, what they're doing is like, okay, well, in order to do this well, we have to have lots of small microservices. And they, they'll each be monitored and restarted, but then we have to have a way for them to talk to each other. So let's put in a message bus. And then, and now, now you got a subscriptions and you have protocols that you have to serialize and you have to version the protocols. And, and like, it, you just have this incredible um, level of complexity. It's like, well, how do I develop the whole system? Can I, as a developer, can I run the whole system on my machine and, and see how it all works together? It's like, well, that gets pretty hard. You know, and that's what, that's what they're trying to do. And with, the beam, we have that, and you can still, you know, you can still have an Elixir microservice that hooks into an existing set of services, and that's totally valid. Uh, but you know, you can have an entire system with all the little workers, and the messages get passed within the system, so you can even avoid network traffic, you can avoid serialization and protocol versioning, and then you can have like the supervisor that just monitors this one little piece, and when something goes wrong, and that one little piece, just that one little bit gets restarted. And everything else is just goes on its happy way and was never bothered. You know, it's like, it really is. I totally think that that is a, it's like a superpower that the beam has and that the rest of, which kind of makes it hard because you bring in people like, you know, you can't always hire people who know Elixir, right? When you're hiring for an, a team. So you're bringing in people from potentially other communities and they're like, well, this is how we solved it in these other communities. This is how we solve these problems. So like, why don't we bring in a message bus? Why don't we bring in all these other things? Like, well, so you have, you have to kind of, you have to have somebody at the company who really understands Elixir and says, and, and can validate why that is a good decision or it is not needed for what you're trying to accomplish. So I don't know, I, I, it's part of my thought process when I think of, um, you know, hiring and uh, in being an advocate in your own company for uh, bringing in change. So I don't know, I, Michael, I know you worked at a job where uh, there were a number of services with a message uh, ability message bus of some kind or message passing between the services. And you were a guy, you were able to introduce uh, at the company, they were, they're introduced uh, some Elixir services, right? What was that like? Yeah, um, actually that company used protobuf for um, all message uh, messages between services, both on an event bus and also there is kind of direct synchronous messaging that would happen kind of request response cycles. And um, uh, getting back to your earlier point or what you mentioned about having versions of protocols and stuff, right? That's, that was a, it was an interesting set of problems to solve. But um, I, honestly, I would, at this point, I would love to hear somebody, you know, maybe somebody from a company like AdRoll or a company like Discord have this conversation with someone from Bleacher Report. Because I know that, you know, it, uh, so for those who aren't aware, Bleacher Report very much just takes the, the design aesthetic of like, hey, it's fine to make a stateless Phoenix service. It's going to respond to certain kinds of requests. It's going to render some JSON back. 
that's great. You don't need to use all the fancy stateful supervision tree stuff other than just what's already there out of the box. That's a, that's a great solution. Um, I implemented one service similar to that at my company and it, it really was like, it was, it was pretty straightforward. It felt very much like building a rails app, except that, um, you didn't have extremely long garbage collection cycles from needing to clean up eight gigabytes of slightly small strings that were copied together in various configurations. Uh, and IO lists save the day so that, you know, like out of the box, we had like 15 X throughput, um, and slightly lower, um, latencies in small numbers of requests. And so it was just, you know, to me, it was better in every way. Um, I also built one service while I was there, which, which took the uh, point of view of like, Hey, let's, let's do things kind of more, um, holistically. Let's kind of, let's try to bring more of the dependencies inside. And so, um, this, this system had to go pull data from a bunch of different external sources and kind of stitch it together. And, um, previously this had been done by storing data in Redis. And so you'd kind of like go fetch this thing and then you'd go pull the thing back out of Redis and stitch them together. Um, and we decided, Hey, that, that's fine, but we can just do this in memory in Elixir and, um, roll the system that did that. Uh, it was distributed. So there's three nodes and, um, they used, uh, they used a library that went over the top of amnesia to make a write consistent in memory store. So it was kind of like you had uh, Redis, but the reads from it were incredibly fast and um, it worked super well. It was crazy stable. Um, it was a lot faster. And um, to me, it was a lot easier to reason about. There was no like, Oh, this is how we serialize dates when they go into Redis. And this is how we unserialize them on the other side. And you know, we just, we just didn't do any of that. It was all in memory. It was all in the same place but they were different OTP applications. One that was responsible for kind of maintaining that in memory store and cleaning it up. And, and another one, which was responsible for reaching out to this source of data and that source of data. Um, and so you could, to your point, Mark, you could start up the whole thing and look at it. Like it was this little microcosm. You could open up observer and, and like poke and prod at here's all the things that, that are there. You could use mix XREF to get a, to get a, di a diagram of like who's calling who. And you could kind of roughly see the shape of like, oh, there's a bunch of little function calls that happen within this section of code. And then there's a few big ones that go over to this other OTP app that trigger that behavior. Um, that, those kind, that kind of tooling was really nice compared to trying to solve that same problem with a bunch of stateless services where if you wanted to know, well, who are the people who call this endpoint and, and do they care about this thing? You're like, uh maybe go search for the name of your endpoint in all the other repos in our company. <laughs> uh, you know, that, that it, it just becomes harder. There's, there's very loose coupling at that point and loose coupling can be a great thing. So um, like I said, I, I would honestly love to hear this from people who have, who have taken this idea further than I did. I only did one relatively small stateless thing, uh, or sorry, one small stateful thing and a couple of small stateless things. Um, but I would love to hear from again, like ad roll or, or Discord, or um, you know, some of the other shops that are that are very much taking the stateful OTP approach to their own application design, and um, and just hear them compare and contrast their experiences with someone who says, mm, "We don't we don't need to do all that. We can just have a bunch of Docker containers running very simple Elixir applications." I think a lot of it just comes down to the kind of problem you're trying to solve too, and like, is is it inherently a stateful thing or not? You know, and like, then if there is there. Uh, if it is stateful, then there are a, a number of different ways you could solve it. You know, like 
be it with Redis or something else, you know, like with in-memory, um, you know, caches or, or whatever within the Beam. So, yeah. Stable stuff is hard, but uh, easier with Elixir. And uh, I've, I've found the stateful things that I worked on to be more fun uh, in the past couple of years. I don't know if that's uh, a direct correlation or just coincidence. Yeah, that's a, I, I like that comment, Josh, because sometimes I've noticed that the products that are most fun for me aren't necessarily, that doesn't correlate super well with profitability. Because <laughs> sometimes I just, I want the challenge, you know, I want, I want it to be interesting and kind of stretch me as an engineer. Whereas sometimes the best way just to get things, to make things super business, make things fun for the business is just to have them be super boring and repeatable. Um, but that's also not where you get leverage, right? Like the whole reason we're writing software is so that we don't have to do the same things over and over. And that's like, we always want to keep pulling on that lever, right? Yeah. I feel like we're still in the, the phase of technology where there's still a lot of access databases that want a web that, you know, that, that need to be turned into a website. So, oh no, that's so true. I bet. Oh, I haven't touched anything like that in so many years though. I, I recently worked on a, a, a tool that is essentially um, a very fancy version of an Excel spreadsheet and uh, all, everyone, everyone loves it. All of the people that use it think it's amazing. It's literally just a fancier version of Excel spreadsheet they already had access to. But anyway. Yeah. Speaking of like stateful stuff, like at work, we're currently exploring more with live view to see uh, kind of like pushing the boundaries and seeing like what, how much of our application can make sense, make use of that. And how much does that make sense? And so we've been kind of pushing it out slowly into different parts and exploring that space. And it still is fairly early in live view. It's not even 1.0. So it's, it's not a entirely smooth. Like there are some little hiccups or just like where we kind of need to think about it or we're waiting like we know, uh, or, or actually we've had a, a guy at work who's been submitting bug reports to, uh, to the live view project and they've been getting fixed. So it's like, it's, it's still like, I'd say like we're in the innovator stage of that, right. Of, of adoption for there, of, for that feature. But, uh, but yes, yeah, so I, I think it's exciting. And that is uh, an interesting new way of, of dealing with stateful. Uh, but I, I really liked, um, it was, see, it was last week, uh, uh, James uh, Edward Gray the third, the second uh, said how he loved the idea of, you know, well, he, he struggled with the idea of like, why does, ev you know, this, this stateless service, why does it forget everything about the customer or the user every time it's, you know, it's like, here comes a request, I have to build up this entire state, find out who they are, what they're doing, what's going on, and then move the peg one more level down, do a little bit of work. And then then they come back with a second request. And I've forgotten everything I have to redo it all. Like live view, it's like, you don't have to, you don't have that problem, right? It's like, I at least know who I'm talking to, and what they're in the middle of doing. You know, so it's an interesting kind of ob different way of looking at it. And I'm excited to see how that makes sense. So I don't know, that's Another little technology adoption lifecycle within Elixir and Phoenix. Yeah, I actually loved that comment from James. Um, by the way, that while we were recording that episode, there was a lot of me muting my microphone and squeeing like a little fangirl talking to both Bruce and James. Um, but, uh, but I loved his comment because I, I think going back to the earlier part of our conversation, the whole reason that I think any one of us goes through this cycle of uh, language adoption or hype cycle at both the micro and macro scale, it almost always starts with like, man, there's this thing that's bugging me or a better way that I can envision 
doing this that, that serves the needs of the people touching my software or, or my team's ability to deliver it. In some way, there's something to make this better. And he was talking about a product where there's kind of like this ongoing conversation between the user and the system before any decisions really got made. And I've worked on a few of those kinds of projects in the past, and I've even seen them structured in such a way that um, that the system just kind of keeps on taking in all, every user action as like an event, and it doesn't do any authentication or authorization or decision-making until the very end. Because breaking up the decision-making into all these little spots was just such a pain. And I totally could understand from James's point of view why Hey, if, if like if we just need to like stitch together all these little small actions and make a decision all at once, I can actually have a process that just wraps around that, and it's not blocking anything else. It's not going to affect anybody's performance or concurrency issues, but it can just sit there and hold stuff in memory about how far I've gotten and what decisions I've made so far, and that means that you can now go back and implement things like flow control or prompting the user to fix something right at the moment that they make a mistake, and so. Um, so now what you've got is, you know, this, this previous architecture where you kind of just optimistically said yes to everything until you finally did all the decisions at the end so that your code was some form of sane and didn't have bugs all over the place. But you've married that with the ability to like respond to the user in a helpful way and create software that actually empowers that user to get their things done more quickly, more correctly. Um, and that to me, that feeling of when you, when you find a tool that just matches the problem the, the way that you have chosen to model the problem in your head now matches the tool so well. It, that's, it's a magical, amazing feeling. And when you actually get to deploy it because your company was okay with adopting that tool or that technique, oh man, there's just, there's nothing better. That's gotta be one of my favorite things in my entire career as an engineer that whenever I can find that fit, it just, it's the best. That is so true. Um, it is I, like for me, myself, like you're speaking, you're speaking from my heart, brother. Amen. You know, um, but it's, I, I kind of feel like, uh, like for me, it really comes down to, can I deliver something better, faster to my users to, uh, to make, you know, cause like I'm trying to make an impact, right? I, 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 at, you know, one point in my career, my, you know, coding was a job and other times it's been like, I am actually trying to make a difference, you know, either socially or within the team, within the company or, uh, trying to make my users' lives better, and and if if I can use some piece of technology that lets me do that in a more effective way, in a faster way, in a way that's easier for me to maintain, that doesn't add all this load and complexity to uh, the project, then I want that, right? And that's exactly what you're describing there. And like you know, because I, I was thinking like as you're kind of describing some of that, it's like oh well, you, you know, one solution for that is a well just just do it all in a, a JavaScript single page app where it's collecting up all of the intents of what we want to accomplish. And then we'll send it all off to the server. So then, but you know, what you end up with is where you've split out all of your business logic and you have, ver you have to version your business logic in two different pro you know, front ends, like two different, uh, like the back end versus the front end. Yeah. So it's, uh, it's an interesting topic. Yeah. But uh, I, I think I've, I've really enjoyed this fireside chat. I don't know. Is there anything else you guys wanted to mention? I would just mention it's not Elixir specific, but if you find yourself in that situation, I have had success with um, using introspection facilities in the backend language so that it can pass up a data structure representing the, the validations or whatever to the, to the front end so that you don't actually have any of the business logic in the front end. It just gets the data structure that represents it from the backend. Um, anywho, 
So if you find yourself in that situation, there's a, there's a thought. Yep. I'll, I'll plus one that I think, uh, turning logic into data and that way you can relocate where you execute that decision or where you check it to any point that makes most sense for your, for your project and company. It's a, it's a great technique. Yeah, but it's hard. Yeah. So I guess uh, just coming back to the very opening uh, topic, one of the thoughts I guess I wanted to kind of close out with was um, people who are coming to Elixir, they're coming maybe from there, you know, coming from JavaScript or PHP or they're different points in their uh, career as a developer, as an engineer. It is an interesting time. Like we are still that early phase. This is, and, and so it, it might not be the easiest thing to find a job, like to say, oh, I just want to find someone. And like, especially because I know there are people who say, you know, I just want to kind of do on the job learning. I want to have someone else teach me. And that's, you know, that, that's a valid way to learn. Uh, but I'd say we're still at that early enough phase that if you want that change, you kind of need to be the agent of change. So you need to be the one who's making an effort to learn on your own uh, because there aren't companies that are necessarily prepared to, to teach you because they, you know, like if you're talking about to someone at your current company, uh, you know, you're, you're having to convince the CTO or the, uh, the VP of engineering or somebody to say that this is uh, something worth making a bet on because it's, uh, for them, it's, it's a risk. You know, any technology decision is a risk, you know, whether it's a, a risk to stay with something old that's tried and true and, and that's maybe kind of waning as a technology, like it's a risk to leave COBOL, right? It's a risk to make any kind of change. So like you're having to be that advocate. You need to take the initiative to uh, learn and to start kind of sharing your discovery and your excitement with other people around you. And there's, uh, we've been talking with lots of people well, as guests, we're talking about with books and conferences and online talks and lots of resources. I've been, I'm creating a course. You can check it out at thinkingelixir.com uh, to help people, you know, in, in this process of learning and and being having something you can point to and share with somebody else that they can say, okay, now I get that thing from that conference talk. Thanks for sharing that. Or you know, let's have a lunch discussion. So what I just wanted to close out with is just saying, don't be disillusioned if you're not seeing the job opportunities right present in front of you. We're still at that early phase. It is picking up though, and it's an exciting time. So just uh, enjoy the ride. It's, it's going to be a good one. But I think that's probably it for our time. Uh, let's move to picks. Yay. I'll start. Um, so we mentioned at the beginning, we were talking about languages. So uh, I just wanted to share a link to Pony Lang. I have not used Pony. I've, I've watched it sort of from the fringes, but uh, it's, it's an interesting language. It's uh, inspired by Erlang, but, but made for, um, made for, for speed uh, is my, my broad understanding of it. But uh, I could be super wrong. I just, I've liked reading, uh, reading posts about it and just kind of following along vaguely from a distance. Michael, you want to go? Yeah, um, two picks this week. So um, the first one is a talk by Brandon Hayes that was given at a Mountain West Ruby Conf um, here in Utah. This is back, I think, in 2010. And he, it's called Surviving the Framework Hype Cycle. He talks about hype cycles, and he also talks about developer happiness, which is an, an interesting overlay. Um, and a lot of what he's talking about here is if you are someone who wants to be an early adopter, you know, or if you have that kind of personality, you might want to think about these kinds of jobs because they are much more um, amenable to that kind of a choice. And uh, if you want to be an early adopter, maybe don't do these kinds of jobs because <laughs> it's going to lead to a lot of pain. Um, and I think that for me, I remember sitting in that audience and thinking, oh my gosh, like 
this was the talk I needed. Um, so big thanks to Brandon Hayes for giving that and for talking through it because it did help me make some kind of job decisions that I think have just led me to having less friction and more happiness. So um, uh, a, a solid pick for me there. The other one is totally non-technical. I've uh, recently been watching YouTube videos from a guy named Alex. He's a, he's a French guy. Uh, I have a friend who grew up in Dijon and he calls him a free range Frenchman. Um, which I didn't know what that means, but apparently it just is that he is very French in the way he speaks and acts. Um, and he lives in Paris. He's a, he's kind of a chef slash engineer. And, um, that to, to me is really interesting just to kind of hear people applying engineering principles to the process of making food. Um, and again, to me, it kind of blurs the lines between engineering and creativity or, or artistic expression. Um, and he's really, he embodies that in the world of kind of food. So anyway, the, I'll link to a video where he's talking about, he's trying to take a pan and make it more smooth and nonstick than a nonstick pan. And, uh, he, it gets all the way down to like polymerization issues, uh, of oil and super interesting, fun stuff to watch. And I also just find him hilarious. So, uh, that's my second pick. That's cool. Yes, uh, Brandon Hayes. He was a, one of the guys that I met at uh, some Ruby uh, meetups back when I was, you know, coming to Ruby in, in this community. So he's an awesome guy. So mine is This Erlang Life. Uh, it is a Tumblr blog. It is just uh, funny Erlang elixir kinds of things. Uh, I believe it's run by Fred Hibbert, but I can only say that because the, I, the graphic is the same graphic he uses for his other things. So it, I can't actually credit or blame him for it. So, uh, but it, it's, if you enjoy Elixir and Erlang and it, tons of funny little gifts and uh, just something fun to check out and share with your friends. So that's it for me. All right. Well, if you would like to reach us, uh, I'm at Brainlid. I'm at Neuter. And I'm MMM Reese. And we'd love to hear from you. And that's it for today. Thank you for listening. And we hope you'll join us next week on Elixir Mix. Woohoo! Bandwidth for this segment is provided by Cashfly, the world's fastest CDN. Deliver your content fast with Cashfly. Visit C-A-C-H-E-F-L-Y dot com to learn more.